I'm Lucy. And I'm Jennifer. You're listening to Everything I Know About. Each week, we share everything we know about a new topic, equipped with some internet research and a little too much exposure to pop culture. In today's episode, we are chatting about creativity. Jennifer and I, for the last two weeks, have been doing The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron, which is a book that covers actual techniques that you can implement in your life day to day to theoretically help you unlock your creativity, whether you have creativity as a part of your daily life and career, or you're just an aspiring wannabe like us. Today, we will be chatting about why creativity is important to our happiness and fulfillment, what happens if you pursue creativity as a vocation rather than just a hobby. We'll answer if creative people are actually more successful and how you can boost your creativity and live a more artistic life. So let's get into it. So I feel like I'm somebody who's always had creative ambitions, but didn't really act on them, especially in my adult life. They kind of took the back burner to more practical professional ambitions. And my primary ambition all my life has been to write a book. I love reading, love writing. I have all of these books. Like my mom actually sent me a bin of all of these books I wrote when I was a kid and like illustrated. (laughs) I'm like, oh yeah, I've been wanting to do this forever. And I always like creatively wrote, like I went through a stint in my 20s when I was living in New York where I would write a little creative blog post after every first date I went on. And I wanted to create this thought catalog slash like media persona of me like going on all my dates. I have like eight of them still on my computer and I reread them sometimes. It's so funny. I would never let them see the light of day now, but they're actually <laughs> they're actually pretty funny. Oh my God, there's this girl on TikTok who got famous. She wasn't writing. She was posting videos after all of her first dates. And then because she was posting videos, she got dates from that Oh my too. God. Men would see her doing this experiment. Then they would reach out to her and be like, can I go on a date with you? And then she would talk about them later. I feel like that would be so much pressure on the date for the guy, like knowing that he's yeah, going to be talking about. I mean, I feel about. like what a good way to like get your work out there. Because I mean, most of the battle with creative work is like, where do you find your audience? And can you break out? Right. Because there's like so many people making content. I feel like people are just like so into gossip and so into voyeurism that that would be like a topic where, I mean, maybe it's for the wrong reasons, but I feel like even if your writing is not good, people would be like, oh, I want to read this to like peer into this like New York girl's life. Uh, I thought I was like doing a sex in the city thing. <laughs> I mean, you probably were. <laughs> oh God. And then just looking back, the men that I was writing about was like, seriously, girl, like they were trash, like get over it. <laughs> But yeah, I've been taking creativity a lot more seriously in the past, I want to say like two years. I wrote a book and a half, kind of like two and a half books with the goal of publishing one day. And there seems to be like this whole part of my brain that just hasn't been exercised in like a decade, especially like being in tech and being, you know, a software engineer and coding all the time. It's like this very like logical part of my brain. And this other part of my brain was like screaming, like I need attention, do something with me. And I came across The Artist's Way in some of my author circles. A lot of people do it. And I was curious, got the book, and I was kind of like blown away reading the first two chapters. But it is very woo-woo. And I know, Lucy, you are like less woo-woo than I am. So I'm very curious to get your take. Okay. So The Artist's Way was published in the 80s. And it's a handbook. It started as an actual course. But now it's this book that is like 12 weeks of prompts and like essentially a lesson plan to help you become more creative. So for the past two weeks, we've both been doing it. I guess, Jennifer, you've been doing it a lot longer, but I've only been doing it for two weeks. 
Yeah. I started over the summer. The way that the Artist by Program works is she has these two sort of foundational things that you have to do every single day, even after the 12 week program is done. And it's write three stream of conscious pages of a journal. She calls them the morning pages. First thing when you wake up. And then the second one is take yourself on an artist date every week for two hours and just do something playful, which we'll get into later. But like what drew you to it and like how creativity is playing a role in your life now? Yeah, I mean, so context for me is I was kind of an introverted kid. I was a big reader, but I wasn't really interested in writing. I like was into art. I took art lessons, did AP art, always oh, you like, did AP got art? a lot of. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's intense. Yeah, my medium was acrylic and oil and just was like always into going to art museums. And then in college, I was trying to decide what to major in other than business, which is like the practical side. But I knew I wanted to do more of a creative degree too. And I was like really trying to decide between art, history, or English. I took a couple art history classes, took some English classes, and then was just taking like an intro writing class, you know, that like a graduate student instructor teaches. Everyone has to take that class your freshman year. But she, one of the first things she assigned us was to write a poem. I'd never written a poem before. And I did the assignment in like five minutes and was like, oh, this is pretty good. I had not read any poetry, but I wrote the poem and I felt good about it and I submitted it. And then she was like, oh, you should like try submitting this to like some on-campus literary magazines. I was like, sure, why not? I submitted them. And then it got published in one. That's so fun. And for me, it was like, hey, this is like a sign, right? Like maybe I could be good at this. In the beginning, it was so easy to write. Like I could write a poem in five minutes. And then the University of Michigan had this program where if you majored in English, you could actually apply for a sub-concentration in creative writing. They accepted 12 students a year, six for fiction, six for poetry. I started taking all these classes to do the degree in poetry and like was in workshop every week. So often you had to write one or even two poems a week. And I always found it like the easiest thing to do. Felt like there was like all of this inspiration I could mine from my background, like my thoughts growing up that I'd never really put on paper. That culminated in a 50 page poetry thesis my senior year. And then literally since then, I've struggled so hard to write. I remember when I was dating, like right after college and I had just moved to Chicago, I would tell people like, oh yeah, I write on the side. I'm really passionate about writing. I dated this guy who I told that to. And then a few months into a relationship, we were in this fight. And he said this pissy comment to me where he was like, you know, you sold yourself this way, but I've never seen you write. One, how dare you say that? Oh my God. Two, you're kind of right. Like I really wasn't writing. I found it like so much harder. And I think it was like, because I had developed this inner critic where every time I would sit down and write, I would think to myself like, this is not good. And it would take me so much longer to produce anything. And I felt like everything needed to be edited before I could like share it. So for the last 10 years, I've been trying to get back to that initial innocence of being able to just like create and not have any expectations, but it's been really hard. The reason that I wanted to do the artist's way was 100% so that I could get rid of that inner critic. Like I would love to be able to write like I did in college and just have it be easy and free. And because you are forcing yourself to write three pages every day, it basically just eventually drowns out your inner critic is the goal. Yeah, that inner critic is so, so real. When I first sat down to write the first draft of my novel, I almost intentionally was like, do not start looking at craft books and don't start getting into writer circles because I was terrified of developing that inner critic. And I couldn't help myself. I totally dove into all of it and it (laughs) shot me so hard in the foot. Like I wish I hadn't. And my heart goes out to people who are in MFA programs or take their craft very seriously. And you need to develop an inner critic, obviously, to push your work to the next level. 
but it does hinder that initial spark of childlike innocence and creativity that you need to even get something down on the page to critique. Yeah, and it's just so subjective. I don't know. It's like really tough because even when you're in class and you have a professor who's supposed to know better or you're like listening to opinions of your peers, I don't know. I just find it to be like very hard to like, why do things break out? Like what makes something really good? I don't know that there's a clear answer to that. And so then when you're like writing yourself, it feels super arbitrary. Like who is the inner critic? Is it actually you? Is it like the professor in your head? Is it just based on what you read? And like, even if it is based on what you read and you produce things that are similar to that, is that really like that original then? And like, what are your chances of breaking out if your voice sounds like everyone else's voice? Yeah. I don't know. Did you struggle with originality? Because you read a lot. Yeah. So like you've been exposed to like a ton of authors' voices and I'm sure you have favorites. Did you find yourself subconsciously mimicking what you liked? Not, not really. The issue was more that like my writing wasn't mimicking what I loved. I love like very pretentious literary fiction. Like, I love Lauren Groff and, like, Jonathan Franzen. And these are just masters of the craft, right? And I'm never going to write like them. Well, probably not. I shouldn't say that. <laughs> like, certainly right now I'm not writing like them. And I also don't want to necessarily. Like, I want to write something that has mass appeal that is still quality work, but people can actually, like, read it and enjoy it. You don't have to have, like, this highbrow thing going on to enjoy my work. So I, I don't want to write like them. But, like, at the same time, I was looking at my stuff being like, okay, this is not that level. This isn't, like, a National Book Award style of writing. And that sucked. I would start writing. And then if in the first paragraph or so I wasn't getting to that place, I would feel so disheartened and I would stop because I'm like, I'm just going to have to rewrite this eventually. So why am I even writing it in the first yeah. place? And I'm very inspired by people who are like really open about their process, like Lauren Groff, for instance, who I consider a master of the craft. She writes seven or eight drafts by hand, longhand on a legal oh pad and throws away each draft after she writes it. Doesn't even go what? back and look at it. Refuses. So she's basically written seven copies of her book. Yeah, before even like... To get to the final. No, 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 to get to the yeah. first draft that she submits to an editor. Oh my yeah. God. But she's so prolific. So that's shocking. Exactly. So she works on more than one piece at a time. She had this really incredible interview in the New York Times like two months ago when her book, The Vaster Wilds, came out and she like dove really deep into her process. And she wrote The Vaster Wilds and Matrix at the same time. And she tricked her brain mm. into doing it by having one manuscript at one end of the room and the other one at the other end and would like sit in two different places. But she would write both of them every single day. Oh my God. Yeah. And so she would literally write this out by hand and like with no intention of it ever seeing the light of day or even reading it anymore. And so I think this idea that we need to be perfect the first round is mm. something that we learn from other parts of our life, but it's not productive to think of in the creative realm. And for some of the research that I did for today's topic, it reiterates that fact and it's like totally at odds with productivity. And I think that that's an internal struggle that like we as people who like to be productive and are like a little bit type A, it's really hard to get into that creative mindset where you have to say like, I'm going to just experiment and play and do things that aren't going to produce. And that actually is part of the productive creative process. Yeah, that's so fascinating. So what does one do if you are like us, you relate to us and you are, you know, a wannabe creative, but you also are so type A and you've been trained your whole life to like want success and external validation and productivity? They're like opposing ends of the spectrum of what your brain does. And it actually the research I did was very interesting because it directly relates to well-being and happiness, too. Creativity and well-being and happiness are the symbiotic relationship where it's like the more happy you are, the more creative you are, and the more creative you are, the more happy you are. And the less happy you are, the more detail-oriented you are. Oh, wow. That's so interesting because I feel like there's this idea in society about like the tortured artist 
right? Like someone like Van Gogh who struggled with depression and like mental illness. I feel like people think of that as, oh, that inspired his art. Totally. I think that that checks out. I mean, I think, I think even like writers, like a lot of them commit suicide and are like... Right, like Sylvia Plath. Gosh. Yeah. And how many of them are alcoholics, like Hemingway? I should clarify that what researchers are looking at when they say creativity is your ability to absorb information and think outside the box. And they define creativity in a very like specific way, which is it is not only innovative and original thought, but it's also useful. So the research definition of creativity is not exactly like an artistic creativity. Mm -hmm. So that I think is an important distinction. And there's actually surprisingly like a whole model for thinking about creativity. It's called the 4C model. And it's what psychologists use. So there's four different types. There's mini C, which is personally meaningful creativity. So this is just you making a little doodle like that's mini C. Little C is everyday creativity. So it's maybe you need to like problem solve for like how to pick up your kids or something while also doing something else. It's just like creative problem solving. Pro C is professional creativity. And this is being creative in your workplace, problem solving at the workplace, making innovative products even. And then big C is what they call eminent creativity. And these are people that literally change the world with their original ideas. So we're talking Steve Jobs here. Got it. And if I were to think about artists or musicians or anyone who's like pursuing like a pure creative path, do they fit into this framework? So I found it really frustrating because there's not a lot of research on this. Their research is more interested in talking about creativity in a professional or like corporate capacity and its ability to like influence your well-being and your psychological state. So, But there's not really a lot on like pure artists. The research that I found on pure artists was actually within the past few years. There was a paper put out in 2021 by Nature, and they researched what makes people do what they call a hot streak in the artistic world. So, for instance, Mm -hmm. like Jackson Pollock, he painted Mm -hmm. for like decades before he ever hit his thing that made him famous, which is the drip paintings. And then there Mm -hmm. have been directors who have made tons of movies before they finally hit the thing that makes them them. And so the researchers used AI to comb through all of this artistic data and figure out like what makes an artist hit a hot streak. And it's literally play. So before they hit their hot streak, they're just experimenting and doing a bunch of random things and like producing basically nothing that has commercial value. And it's like very disorganized, right? Like you would say like this person isn't really producing anything that, you know, we would deem as productive. And then all of a sudden they hit something that they really focus in on and it hits commercial success. And then all of a sudden they're being productive. So it really reminded me of that old, I don't even know if he actually said this, but like there's this old quote attributed to Picasso. Do you know what I'm going to (laughs) say? No. He's on a bench and there's a woman who comes up to him and was like, can I have a portrait? And he was like, sure. And he in like 15 minutes draws her portrait and hands it over to her. And he's like, "Okay, that'll be $100,000. She's like, what? That took you 15 minutes. And he goes, no, it took a lifetime. Mm, and that's a good quote. If he's- I know, right? I think about that all the time, but that's almost exactly what the research shows as well. Even the way that like we define productive, it bothers me so much because this research, right? They're just like implicitly assuming that like productive means generating commercial value. Yeah. And I don't know. What about those artists who like labor their whole life were never quote unquote discovered or their art never took off and then only until later. I think especially female artists because it was so much harder for women to get recognized for their art back in the day. 
now we're like recognizing some of the genius of their work. And I mean, was their life productive? It feels like super arbitrary because it feels like at that time, no, but now we're going back and hopefully starting to like give them more value. I feel like these two things in my brain are definitely like at opposing ends, productivity and creativity. So it's strange to have to put them on the same scale. Yes. And like measure creativity by productivity. Yeah, completely. And it's interesting because the idea of creativity and productivity being intertwined seems to be more relevant in the professional context. Obviously, I mean, that makes intuitive sense, but like it's it's such a different process for artistic creativity. So for instance, Mm -hmm. there are so many articles in like the Harvard Business Review that are like, creativity is so important, but we overemphasize the importance of creativity in the workplace. And their justification for this is that creative types are idea generators that don't know how to execute. In a corporate context, you need somebody that knows how to execute a good idea. And so we overemphasize like brainstorming sessions and letting people think outside the box and then like not actually following through with any of those Mm -hmm. ideas, which I personally have found to be true in the workplace. Absolutely. But on the other end of this, it's like to actually create something that's like truly innovative and interesting, you need to go through all of these failed experiments. And so I think both in like a societal corporate aspect and on a personal level, we're all like missing the mark here on what true creativity and true experimentation and failure is like it's not a brainstorming session it's a very iterative lifelong process yeah no I agree with that that makes a lot of sense to me and so in a work or in a productivity context people say that they value creativity how true is that is being 10% more creative is that really going to help you as an individual and also us as a society like be more successful in the long term compared to if that 10% was applied towards like math skills that are more concrete and less creative? God, I mean, I think that's the question that everyone's trying to answer with this research. And the answer is not concrete or straightforward. If you were to interview 1500 CEOs, which they did and ask them what was, (laughs) of course they did, and ask them like, what was the number one skill you needed to be a successful leader? 60% of them said creativity was the number one skill. Oh my gosh. Dude, no, it's like luck and timing that is the number one skill. That's not even a skill. It's just the number one thing. But nobody wants to admit that. So they attribute it to creativity because it's like this amorphous thing that nobody can really define and no one can really replicate. It's just like my inherent creativity helped me get to this place when really it's like so much chance and nobody can admit that in our capitalist society because admitting that would lead everyone else to be like, oh, I might as well stop trying to work so hard if it's so dependent on external factors and not just me. That's probably Sorry, rant. <laughs> rant. Go off. <laughs> I think that's absolutely part of it. I do think that there is something to say for being a creative thinker, like that eminent creativity. I don't know how many of these 1500 CEOs we would be able to qualify as big C eminent creatives, though. But there's this idea that the organization is a hostile environment for creativity. Corporate organization is a hostile environment because it relies on order and it relies on routine. And these things do not foster innovation. I think we do see like real life examples of this in the world. Like I'm thinking of the banking sector or like the publishing industry or these industries that are very Mm -hmm. rooted in tradition and routine and they're not thinking outside of the box and they kind of get left behind a little bit. And it's not that these people working in these industries aren't creative. It's that they're hindered by routine. And so to foster a corporate environment that's more like agile, I think that's why we see a lot of innovation coming out of Silicon Valley, for instance. It's not that these people are like Mm -hmm. inherently more creative. It's just that the environment allows them to pivot and move and be flexible. Yeah. Like if you're at a startup, you just don't have to like 
go through the 18 steps that you might have to at a big corporation to like get your idea heard or like try something in the market. Yeah. Or even just having that like background processing of like I'm thinking of creative things because I know I can like talk about them later. I think that is also really important. It's sort of hearkening back to that inner critic that we were talking about before. Like if I knew I was in an environment where I was so regulated and like no one was going to listen to a new idea. I would shoot down every new idea that I ever had. If I feel like I'm living my life in a very routine oriented way and like I'm doing like X, Y, Z steps and everything is very practical and ordered, I'm not going to be thinking outside of the box and coming up with these creative pursuits. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like what you're saying is if we want to be more creative, we need to break out of our routine and like become more spontaneous and like live on the edge and do wild things that we wouldn't normally do a bit. Yeah, I think so. And I think the the research also supports that, meaning that like doing more varied things in your life makes you happier and spurs innovation, which then spurs creativity. It's like this whole symbiosis. As you said, there's been a lot of research done on how creativity is like turned into a skill that can help you achieve more success in a work context. But then you also have, as we touched on earlier, this idea of like play and experimentation and like putting out a lifetime of output that has no clear productive making money value, but that has produced some of like the best artists in our history. For those artists, I'm really curious to like get into their head a bit. You can be the most creative, artistically minded person in the world, and you can say that you have all these great ideas for painting, but the person that has less creative ideas but actually paints is going to be the more successful artist. So I think that combination of execution and creativity is like the sweet spot, which is so fascinating because like, as we said, they're like diametrically opposed to each other almost. But yeah. Yeah. Well, I think what you're pointing out is there's like this nuance because I think we often associate execution with productivity. But actually, like if we're defining productivity the way these researchers did, which is that productivity, like productive art or productive output is what generates money. That is different than execution, right? Because like Jackson Pollock, I mean, he's extremely prolific, right? So he made a ton of art that was not sellable before he became famous, Mm -hmm. but still made a ton of art. And like that's that like practice, I guess. It's fascinating because you said people who build habits who have two rigid structures aren't creative. But it seems like if you build habits around your art practice whether that's like visual art or music or whatever. But if you sat down and you developed a habit to say every day, I'm going to produce 10 poems, regardless of how good they are. I feel like that is like a hack maybe to like get you into more of a creative headspace. I feel like the artist way is kind of trying to do that by telling you write three pages. That is like an example of a habit. They're trying to build structure into your life to say every day you wake up and you write. Yeah, 100%. I think you're hitting on something that I also found is a total conundrum because most artistic people or like people who are artistic as a vocation will tell you it is still work. Like I still sit down every day and make Mm -hmm. a routine out of it. Routine is so important in the creative artistic context because inspiration isn't going to strike every day. And if you wait for inspiration to strike, like you will never accomplish anything Mm -hmm. in the artistic realm. Most artistic people that I talk to like absolutely know this to be true. So yeah, to your point, you do need to develop discipline and routine around your creative practice. And that doesn't make it wither. That makes it grow. Luciana, you did research on like the artist as a vocation. Yeah. There's this like trope of the starving artist. You know, when you're little and you tell your parents like, oh, I want to like be an artist. They're like, oh, get realistic. (laughs) That's not going to pay the bills. Like, what are you going to do also? So I did a little bit of research just to figure out, is this true? Like, is everyone really a starving artist? And I mean, the short answer is like, yes, it's really, really hard to make it. I guess I'll start with this context. The U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics collects survey data on like employment and your annual wage. 
the most recent data we have is from May of 2022. And looking at some of this data, I looked at artists first and the median annual wage. We can use visual artists in this particular data set because that was the highest number of people within this larger category of artists. The 50th percentile, they're making $57,560 a year. And the 75th percentile is $83,440 per year. Just to give some context around those numbers, the average household income in the United States is approximately $63,000 a year. So those numbers are like fairly high. I was going to say that seems like pretty on par with the national average. Like, yes, a little bit lower, but that's right. So these are people whose main profession is being an artist. So that would mean that I'm like primarily I'm making money from oh, this. And so if you look at the number of people, so then I compared it to just like accountants. I just pick like a profession that feels really prolific. And I feel like people think of accountants as like they make a good living. They're not incredibly rich, but they make a very stable good living. So for accountants, their 50th percentile median wage is $75,980, 13% higher than for visual artists. But as a percentage of the total population of employed people in the United States, accountants make up 5% and artists make up less than 0.002%. Oh my gosh. That's the difference, right? Like if you are one of the few artists who can make it on your art, it can support you. But the issue is for everyone who doesn't make it. And that is most people. Yeah. I found this stat that with streaming, only musicians with 1 million or more monthly streams or 0.4% of the musicians on Spotify can rely solely on that income. And out of those musicians who their income is solely based on music, 43% reported earnings of $25,000 or less. Wow. And 64% reported income of $40,000 or less. So I guess this begs the question, like, if most people aren't making it and therefore they can't support themselves without also working a second job, because that's what people do. They pursue their art. They're not doing it 100% of the time. They're maybe working on a 10%, 20% if they're lucky. But for the artists who do make it, are they actually better? Are they more creative? I found this really interesting study that was done by this Columbia Business School professor, Paul Ingram, and his colleague, Mitali Banerjee, who use like this exhibition at MoMA from 2012 to publish this paper in 2018 about what is actually key to an artist making it. Are more creative artists more likely to make it? was their question. Mm -hmm. And what they found is that actually making friends is more important than producing novel art. Oh my God. It's all about your network. If you have a really amazing network, your chances of making it and like getting in galleries and becoming well-regarded, well-known and being able to sell your work for money is much higher than they, I mean, they did figure out how to like rank art by like creativity and like novelty. They had this whole like system and scale around that. And even when they ranked artists' actual work based on those things, they found that it was just the people, specifically the people who had really global networks mm. that were more likely to become recognized. Okay, so and the art world works exactly like the corporate world. Good to know. Yeah. <laughs> they even identified that like there is a specific linchpin of this artist network, and that was Kodinsky. So <laughs> if you knew Kodinsky, an artist in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and that was the period of like artists that they were looking at. Oh, okay artists in this space who like knew one another, who were producing work, who were contemporaries. 
And it turned out that if you knew who Kanditsky was and you were friends with him, that you were like that much more likely to become well-known and able to make a living from your work. Oh my God. How funny. That like is this so is funny. like Gertrude Stein, right? And like her literary salons, all of these amazing writers and artists all went to Paris and like Hemingway and Picasso and Gertrude Stein was hosting these parties where everybody would come together and like be creative together and be fabulous. And that network in and of itself became well-known and like helped launch a lot of careers of folks who were like discovered through that process. Wow. I mean, I want that to exist today. Did you get any sense of like if this was still relevant in today's society with the internet? Because I feel like that that makes sense pre-internet era where it's like discoverability happened through connection. But now that it's more democratized, I wonder if that still holds. They studied like an earlier generation of artists. But I think if anything, it's even more so because there's a difference between now being completely unknown to having somewhat of a following. I think that is easier because you can like better find your niche. But I think what becomes popular at like a societal level is still really dependent on who you know and tastemakers. Like I think a great example is like I was like stalking your TikTok and I saw that you made this video about this woman who is like this young artist. Oh, Anna Wyatt. She, yeah. yeah. Tell us about Anna Wyatt. I discovered her because a painting that she did is the cover of a very popular book that came out this year, Big Swiss. And I loved mm. that book and I loved the painting. So I looked into her and she kind of like blew up in the art world. Like she has all of these profiles in like the New York Times and the Atlantic. And she is a beautiful girl, young 20s, relatively unknown until she got introduced to, I forget his name, but he's like a famous gallery investor, art person older man in his like 70s or 80s very much looks older too he's not like a a silver fox daddy in his 70s or anything <laughs> and then they they're dating and she all of a sudden is getting her painting sold for like millions of dollars and she's this prolific art person so like actually when you were saying that i was like oh this is like anna wyatt like i know exactly yeah and, but she's getting flack for it though like people are not behind it they're like oh duh she's just dating this older dude and now she's like this prolific artist so like they're kind of seeing through the veil yeah yeah yeah, I mean, I think that's a good example because it's like no one is saying like you don't need to be creative to make it. I think you do need to be creative to make it. But it also really helps like your chances of success are that much higher if you do know people like this example. Right. Like her art is good. I mean, I also looked at some of her work and I thought it was like inventive and interesting. And I was like, yeah, I, I like this work. Mm -hmm. Like I would be interested in it. I would go to an exhibit on it. But it certainly also helps that like her work is getting in front of the right people due to her connections or this man or whatever the story is there. And I think that's what this study showed. Because like a lot of these artistic fields, there's huge gatekeepers, right? Like publishing, totally. obviously, huge gatekeepers. Galleries are huge gatekeepers. They're not actually democratized. If my goal is to become a successful artist where I can make a living doing my art, it seems a much safer bet to go and like try to network with the right people than like put my stuff on YouTube and TikTok and Instagram, like just hoping that it will take off. Yeah, totally. And I wonder like these comfortable living artists, like if it, wears on their creativity at all like on some level i wonder like if that inner critic and pressure is just so amplified by the time you're making it your living that it's like not even enjoyable anymore that's true i mean like at some point you become known for your reputation so i feel like you can sell right but i think that's different than how you feel about your own work and if you feel like inspired to like keep creating it's like this question of like what happens if if your passion is art and then you become so successful at it that it can be your job are you less passionate about it if your passions become work are they just work 
<laughs> and I mean, like, I don't know. I'm sure you have an opinion about this. Like, I kind of do believe that is, I guess, my opinion. But you you believe what? That it does become work if you're relying on it. If you, like, all of a sudden have to do it. It's, like, one thing when it's, like, okay, I have, like, waiting tables to pay the bills. And, like, art is my escape. But then now it's, like, I don't have to do anything other than produce. And so if I don't produce art, like, I'm going to feel like I didn't do anything that day. And I feel like that's where that spiral comes from, where it becomes like less rewarding, less enjoyable. Yeah, I think I don't know what the answer is, because I feel like I, I would probably be that way on some level. My inner critic would be screaming at me all the time, like, this isn't commercially viable, like, this isn't your brand. But then Ruben, my fiance, he's a professional musician mm. and he does not feel that way. So I think it like is really dependent on the person. Like he feels like he gets paid to play. I mean, that's such a healthy Wow. I feel like he does not go to he does not need to go to therapy. He's just got such a healthy worldview. Well, his mother is a professional therapist, so he's oh, okay. okay. There we go. There we go. That's why he's so mentally healthy. Yeah. Um, very. Yeah. I mean, according to the research, like most people are like us, unfortunately. Yeah, like, I, I'm sure. You know, work and leisure are obviously diametrically opposed. Like the definition of leisure is literally that you don't have to do it. You're choosing to do it out of joy and that it doesn't bring you any productive value. So Aristotle you know, okay, I'm going to like name drop Aristotle, right? <laughs> um, but like he theorized that there's like, quote, proper occupation and quote, noble leisure. And leisure, unlike just amusement or fun, leisure is pleasure, happiness, living blessedly. And it is literally not possible for those who are occupied since occupations aim at some necessary end. So you have to cultivate leisure. It is literally the art of doing nothing or doing just what brings you joy for its own sake. And anytime you're doing it for some other sake, it is no longer leisure because you're then doing work, which is for like extrinsic good and leisure is intrinsic good. Wow. So by that definition, like artists who are able to become full-time artists, they aren't engaging in leisure anymore when they're creating. That is work because that is like for extrinsic motivation, such as like selling that piece of art. And the research is that when you have true leisure, like it results in fewer negative emotions, you're less stressed, your heart rate even goes down, you're less depressed. So if in your mind, though, the art of painting or the art of writing suddenly shifts from those things, you're not going to get those same benefits because you're not using it for just an escape anymore. You're like doing it to be productive. Wow. OK, that intuitively makes so much sense. But then at the same time, who wouldn't want their play to be their life too? You know what I mean? Like if you enjoy the play so much and you can get paid for it, like that seems like the sweetest deal in the world. But I guess like the catch 22 is that it is no longer play at that point. That's so sad. Yeah. I wonder if like for Ruben, like he likes the music, but he also might just like the work of the music. You know, I think if your attitude is like what we were saying earlier, like being creative, it's also work, right? And like you build a habit around it and you build time to like push through even when things are hard. That to me is like really different than if I'm like got an hour free and instead of watching TV, I choose to like paint a portrait for fun. Like it's really different if it's like, oh, no, I know it's going to be hard and I'm like up for the challenge and I like I'm so excited about this that I'm going to push through that anyway. Yeah, 100 percent. Like we've actually talked about this because with anything, you have to have the grit to get through the tough times. And like that doesn't end just because you're doing something that you like love, quote unquote, like there are going to be things that you need to have grit to get through. And also, as with anything, you need to enjoy the process. And so it's like the joy in the process itself rather than the outcome or the play of it. And so, yeah, anything from like painting to music production to writing, like when you're going through that third draft and like getting notes back from your editor, I'm sure that's not fun and that's not the creative process. 
you need to fall in love with the process at that point. Yeah, that's such a good point. Yeah. And it was interesting. I was out to dinner with a few musicians the other week and I asked them, I was like, if you had one year where it's like your careers were just set, everything would go status quo and you had no issues with money and like you could come back to your career after this year is done, what would you do during that year? And they answered, make music. I was like, seriously? Yeah, that's so fascinating. And I was like, how is that different than what you're doing now? And they're like, well, I would just be able to like make without the pressure of it like fitting my brand. Yeah. And like, I would just be able to like play. And I was like, in my mind, I was like, you should just do that now. Because like, that's actually going to be the thing that probably pops off because it's like fresh and creative, whatever. But like that thought that it's like work at one point, but play in another context, but you're still doing the same thing that you love in both contests. I thought that was very interesting. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense to me now after like we had this conversation. Yeah. Um, wait, do you know the rapper that came out with a flute album? <laughs> wait, I know what you're talking about. I can't remember who it is. They actually talked about him during this conversation. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. It's so funny that you say yeah, that. Like, what is his name? Oh, Andre 3000. Oh, I'm not a big music person. I'm like so ignorant when it comes to music. But like when I was home for Thanksgiving, my husband's little sister played this album <laughs> of like experimental flute music and was like, oh, this is Andre 3000. And we were all just like his whole family. We were just listening. I mean, I think that's a perfect example of someone who like was like, fuck it. Like, let me just yeah, do what I want. And it works out. It worked. That's so funny. Yeah, I feel like there's so many examples of this where like somebody does something experimental and everyone's like, that's so dumb. That's not going to work. And then it actually does. Like weirdly, A Little Life. How do you pronounce the author's name? It's like Hana Yanagahara. Yeah. So yeah, I apologize. That's so ignorant that I don't know how to pronounce her name. But even A Little Life, which is like one of the best selling books of this decade, they told her they were like, no one's going to read this thing. It's a tome. It's like eight or nine hundred pages. It's so mm-hmm. long. And it's not like a fantasy book or like an epic that you would imagine would be that long. And she was like, OK, well, then like you decide what hundreds of pages you want to cut. And then her editors were like, OK, fine. Like we can't cut anything. We'll just put it out. And it blew up. So I think, yes, like play and like just going after like, oh, this is an original idea. But like, I don't really give a shit if it has commercial viability. That is the most refreshing thing as a consumer to see. Mm hmm. Yeah. So on the topic of like play, which I think for us, anything creative is play since we aren't professional artists and we're very much wannabes. Let's chat about our experience doing the artist's way. I'm so excited to hear about your experience doing morning pages because I feel like I've been doing it for like a while now and I don't know a single person in my life who's done it and I have all these thoughts about it. The actual course part of the artist's way, like the 12 weeks, like doing these prompts things, I did the first week and I thought it was so fucking silly like I could not I felt so stupid doing it and like she even says in the program like you're gonna feel really dumb doing this but just do it anyway and I couldn't and so I I need to start over but I I do at one point want to do it I've been doing the morning pages as my like quote-unquote doing artist way got it and are you on a like how many days has it been are you on a streak or like what's that practice look like for you So I was on like a three month streak of doing it basically every day over the summer and into the fall. And then I like fell off for a month or two. And then like when we did it as the experiment, I've been on a, I think like a week and a half streak. Mm. Yeah. What about you? How often have you done it? Yeah. As I said, I've only started these last two weeks. I did miss two days over that two week period. It definitely is not a habit yet. I don't know, frankly, if it will become one because I was, I will say I was not the biggest fan. Like, I mean, I expected it to be painful. I think she, like Julie Cameron, the author of The Artist's Way, does set you up to expect that like this is not fun. <laughs> it is something you just have to force yourself to do, especially in the beginning. And you will probably question every day why you're doing it. But that's like part of the point. And I felt those things 100%. Well, can you give us like a quick overview on like what she says the benefits are and like why you should do it? 
Yeah. So, you know, the inner critic that we were talking about earlier, I mean, that develops for everyone, especially like I think once you're an adult. And so because you are forcing yourself to write three pages every day, it basically just eventually drowns out your inner critic. You're not even supposed to like reread what you wrote. You can like literally throw the pages away. It is just to build this habit and like get into the act of writing so that you basically stop making excuses so that you stop saying like, oh, this doesn't sound good. I'm going to stop. And you just like force yourself through the difficult act of of, like starting and like stop having to rely on like inspiration to strike. Yeah, I don't know that I totally buy into that. Yeah, I mean, it sounds great. Like, of course, like wouldn't anybody want to just be able to like manufacture creativity by doing a a seemingly simple thing like writing three pages instead of needing to like have inspiration, right? But yeah, I guess like my experience was like, yeah, I did feel like everything I was writing was trash. (laughs) And it almost ended up being more like a journal, like whatever was in my brain or like whatever I was stressed about, I would just put on the paper. But two weeks later, I, I don't feel like it had much of an effect. Like I don't feel more creative. And I was kind of forcing myself to do it because I knew we were recording this episode and I wanted to experience it. But I don't know that I've gotten, I feel like at some point, like if you're trying to build a habit, it has to give you like a good feeling. Otherwise, you're just like forcing yourself, which I feel like is like the same thing with exercise, right? Like if you hate running and you force yourself to run every day, like maybe you can do it for 30 days, but at some point you're going to fall off the wagon. Were you ever a journaler? No, I was never a journaler. So this is like, I'm literally forcing myself to do it. Yeah. But tell me about your experience. Because three months is a long time. So like surely (laughs) at that point it did become a habit and maybe it was more enjoyable. Yeah. Honestly, I didn't feel like she did a very good job of explaining why you needed to do the pages in the book. And so I did like external research and I found out that like so many creative people and like successful business people even do this practice. I was like, okay, there's got to be something here. Mm. Like Rick Rubin does it. And he talks about it extensively in his book that came out. Mm. I think it's like The Art of Creative Living that came out this year. So the other side of this is like, yes, it's supposed to like defeat your inner critic, but it's also supposed to be like just brain dumping everything at the beginning of the day so that you're not cluttered. Like your brain isn't cluttered later in the day with all of these stressors. And I actually found it to have the opposite effect at first. So what would happen is, mind you, I was doing this like right after I quit my job. So I was like so fucking stressed out. And like I had so many things like running through my brain. And so I would wake up first thing in the morning and like go write these pages. And I would be in a terrible mood all day because I was like, I'm so stressed. Like, what if I can't make money? Like, what am I doing right now? And then I would like pick apart all of these like invisible problems in my life and then like self-criticisms. And then I would just think about it all day long because it was the first thing I thought about that morning. And then I eventually got to a point where it's like if I didn't get up and spit it out on the page, I would like just sit in bed in the morning and think about it. That was like phase two. It like primed my brain to start thinking about all of this stuff in the morning. So then I had to go do the morning pages. And then phase three, I was writing the same things over and over again. And I was so sick of myself for writing the same things. I started to be like, okay, we need to like fix this shit now because you're just thinking about it over and over again. And I think that is probably the real reason mm-hmm. that you do it is to be more self-aware. However, I am a lifelong journaler. I've kept a journal since I was a child. So I didn't find the practice worked for me because I didn't enjoy it. Like you said, like I didn't like getting up and doing this. There were like two reasons I didn't like this. One is that I feel like I journal more creatively when I'm like inspired and I naturally am inspired to journal. Like I don't need someone to force me to do that. Mm -hmm. And so it took away the joy of journaling for me, which I did not like. Mm -hmm. And the second thing was I felt like I didn't have momentum in the day after I did it. If like that was the first thing I was doing that day, I felt energy drained. I just wanted to like lay on my couch after and like read. And then I felt like I just wasted my whole morning because I 
did these stupid morning pages. Revisiting it now, because you had to do it for this episode, did you start from the original feeling of like it ruining your day? Yes. Or were you, did you pick up back at part three? Okay. No, no, no. I was like ruining my day. You started again. from scratch. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, I was like all of this like new shit in my brain that was like, I think that technically that's healthy to like dredge it up and get through it. But also I could just ignore it. I know. <laughs> like, Literally, going. I I relate to what you said so much because I also was like, I don't want to do this. And it felt like a chore every morning and I would only write like negative stuff. And I was like, I don't feel like I'm like that negative. Like, I feel like I'm generally an optimist. So like, am I just super repressing like all of these thoughts? Having to fill three pages for me was really hard. So, you know, for context, I'm writing in the standard size moleskin. So they're not like huge pages. I don't like lined paper, so depends a little bit how big my handwriting got. But definitely by the end, I was like writing bigger so that I could like <laughs> fill space. Yeah. Because um, I think having to write the three pages means by the end, you're out of new thoughts and you are recycling often like negative thoughts. And it is super draining. I don't think it's something I'm going to like continue doing, honestly. Yeah, I think I want to transform it into just journaling for myself when I want to more, which doesn't happen every day. It'll happen like two or three times a week. And I think that's healthy. And I, I do find yeah. that the like journaling practice when I want to, not first thing in the morning, is like I go to it when I have a problem that I want to tease out with myself. And I feel like I'm more like in tune with myself. But I, the morning pages practice did not do that for me <laughs> at all. Yeah. Yeah, if Julia Cameron were to ever listen to this, she'd be like, well, you guys didn't do it right because you are supposed to do it for like a really, really long time to okay, get over girlfriend, that like, negative <laughs> feeling. But no, we're just being real. Yeah. I did appreciate the like artist date concept. Yeah. Which is like an excuse to just play, right? And like gives you two hours of the week to take something that you maybe, maybe you would do on your own, but it does give that like external validation. Like, oh, I am checking something off the list that I was supposed to do yeah. this week and like feel good about. So I feel like I really like that. I feel like it's so much about framing, right? Because like, okay, so it's it's about to be Christmas. I, for my first artist date, I was like, I'm going to buy a tree and I'm going to decorate it. And I think there's a framing where it's like, oh, that is a chore. Like everybody does that every year if you celebrate Christmas. But for me, I, as an adult, have never owned a tree. We had a fake tree growing up when I was a kid. I've never owned a real Christmas tree. It's always something I wanted, but never did because I was always like, like I live in New York City. So it kind of has to go get a tree and like carry it down several blocks and like up into my apartment. And then what do I do with it? Like after it's done and it's going to be a mess <laughs> and I have a dog. And there was like always all these reasons why I never did it. But then because of this challenge of doing artist date, I was like, well, shit, I need something creative to do. Like what is achievable this week? And I was just walking past my local gardening shop and they had all these trees and I was like, that will be it. Like I'm going to decorate a tree. And I'm like so happy I did it. It was so much fun oh, looking at like tree inspiration. Do you feel like it unlocked something in your brain? Like what was the after effects of this? I mean, it certainly did help me become a better writer. It's not like I sat down and wrote <laughs> poems after that. But I I feel proud that I did it when I look at it. I mean, it is a physical thing. So I think that helps as well because like I look at it every day. Yeah. And I feel good about it. And I feel like this is a difference compared to the morning pages. I got like an immediate dopamine hit when I did the artist date. And it made me want to do the next one, which was like doing plaster art. So far, my artist dates have also been home decor, but <laughs> but it was fun. And I think like it's something that's been like I've literally had those canvases. They've been sitting in my closet for ages, but it like forced me to like make the time for it. So I think that is something that I'm going to do just because it makes me happy. Like we'll see if in the long term it makes me want to pick up a pen and write. Is that something that you would want to happen eventually? Like that's 100% the goal of why I was interested in doing this program. I think my takeaways are that there's no magic bullet. Like, I don't think doing this and like even 
if we were to do the whole 12 weeks, I don't know that that would solve it for me. Like I can feel that some of the things aren't quite working for me, even within the last two weeks. But I think if you're a person who like doesn't know where to start, why not try it? Right. Because like if it's not morning pages, like morning pages could work for you or it could be the artist date or it could be like one of the eight to 10 other things she says to do that we didn't even do. <laughs> right. Well, I think the answer here is you got to make it your own in true creative fashion. Don't go by routine and what people tell you. Make it your own. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> if you enjoy the pod, we would love for you to give us a follow and rate us on Apple Podcasts, which helps us get the word out and reach new listeners. Full transcripts and show notes are available on Patreon, where if you choose to become a patron, you'll also get access to bonus content, our monthly book club, and our eternal gratitude. If you'd like to get in touch or suggest a topic for a future episode, email us at everythingIKnowAboutPod at gmail.com or DM us across all socials at EKAPOD, that's E-I-K-A pod. Thanks for listening and see you next week. Bye.